Hey everybody, Scott Burnside here and Pierre Lebrun joining from Toronto, Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Thanks for dropping in. Now, Pierre, I'm going to spare both our guest, Adam Vingen, and our listeners rehashing all of what happened last week while you and Craig hijacked the podcast from Florida, at least till later on, and we will move on. So I, I just want you to be prepared that I'm, I'm not going to dwell on the fact that you hijacked the podcast and didn't even bother to call me like you said you would last week for the podcast. So best I, podcast, best podcast of the year. But otherwise, we missed you, buddy. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm not. That that really hurts. It hurts even more. So I'm, we're good. I'm going to be big about this. Adam Bingen, thank you for joining us. Now I know just before we started to tape, uh, as everybody knows, you're our Nashville guy, and uh, thank you for joining. But you are in sunny California, but haven't really got the full California effect yet right like you just arrived last night so how are things on the west coast yes i arrived late last night so other than a 40 45 minute drive in a rental car from lax to anaheim and this and being able to step outside for a little bit this morning so far so good i mean it's a beautiful time of year to be in southern california but then again it's always a beautiful time of year to be in southern california (laughs) so uh the predators will be in california all week uh, ducks on Tuesday, Kings on Thursday, Sharks on Saturday. So, you know, I can't uh, go a season without making a California swing. So this is my opportunity. Good, good stuff. All right, before we get into uh, sort of post-trade deadline national predators and how they fit into the uh, pantheon of Western Conference contenders, I'm curious about your experience in Nashville. I don't you you covered the Capitals in Washington. You covered the Predators uh, for the Tennessee and before joining the Athletic. I'm just curious, what's the biggest change you've seen since your time in Nashville and in that marketplace, in the buzz around the team or how the team is perceived or just your overall feelings since going to Nashville? Has there been a dramatic change or or has it been more of a gradual thing? What's What's it been like for you? I do think it's been uh, fairly dramatic. And, t- and tomorrow, Wednesday, um, marks the four-year anniversary since I moved from Washington to Nashville. So the timing of the conversation is right. And when I came to Nashville, when I attended my first Predators game on the beat for the Tennessean, um, it was a game at home against the Minnesota Wild. It was the first time I had ever been to a game at Bridgestone Arena. Um, I had, when I interviewed for my previous job, it was the only. It was the first time in my life that I had stepped foot in the state of Tennessee. Not even, you know, c- through a connecting flight to go somewhere else. So Tennessee was really a foreign land to me. So when I attended that game, you know, I was blown away immediately by the atmosphere and the crowd, and um, and it's and it's grown from there. I really think my first real taste of it was the 2016 NHL All Star Game, which. Uh, Nashville did a fantastic job of hosting, and, and I'm sure, and I think everybody from people of our ilk to the players to the NHL management, you know, loved just how uh, receptive and welcoming Nashville was to that event. And I think that was my first real taste of how much of a hockey market Nashville was and and could become. And then, of course, the Stanley Cup final in, in 2017 was really the you know the high mark. Uh, for the Predators uh, fan base and the franchise as a whole in terms of exposure. And I think that really 
nailed it home for me just because it was a turnout for the Predators. Of course, with the NHL All-Star Game, it's not hard to plop it down anywhere and get people interested because the best players in the league are all in one place for a couple of days. But this was for the Predators and seeing the crowds grow outside of Bridgestone Arena from maybe a handful of people, a couple hundred people at the park across the street to them having to shut down Broadway to accommodate the number of people that want to come watch the Predators uh, who couldn't get tickets for the game. I mean, I think it was amazing. Those those overhead shots that NBC did uh, of downtown Nashville uh, ahead of the Stanley Cup final. And then when it you know combined with the CMA Fest, the Country Music Festival, it was just it was a site that really is beyond description. So, you know, I've had the the privilege of being able to cover the Predators through the, you know, the height of their prosperity, so to speak, um, you know, in terms of making it to the Stanley Cup final and winning a President's Trophy, you know, winning their first ever Game 7 here in Anaheim, actually, um, you know, making some pretty seismic trades, Ryan Johansson in January of 2016, of course, P.K. Subban in June of 2016. So I've really seen this... A franchise grow before my eyes from, you know, this nice little team that could to a, you know, a realistic Stanley Cup contender. So it's really been a, a thrill to now be able to chronicle that journey for the athletic. Pierre? Yes. Is that not the greatest all-star game of all time in Nashville? That was uh, I can't lots say, of fun. I can't it was say epic. my... I can't say I, my memory is totally 100% accurate. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember you it, having a great time, Pierre. I remember uh, you at the Honky Tonks having a great time. So yeah, I can answer I, that I, question I, for him. I did. I, I, don't, I go to all-star games more for a social aspect than for a work aspect. But I remember when the NHL announced that the all-star game was going to Nashville. I believe I tweeted, which uh, <laughs> a lot of people enjoyed. I can't wait to go. And I might even go to the game itself. <laughs> That's uh, that was my take. Nashville did a fabulous job, and uh, you know, I, it, it's interesting to me that where the Predators are at this hour, in this moment, on the precipice of either something great, or is it starting to slide out of its window? I mean, it can't try to win the cup forever in the salary cap world. And I tell you, I think David Poyle had an unbelievable trade deadline. Um, when you consider that he got to keep his first round pick, but upgraded his team, not once, but twice, if not three times, if you go back to the Boyle deal way before as well, I, listen, I think the GM has put this team in a position where here we go, here are the tools, go get it. But man, right off the hop, they could play St. Louis, which is going to be a really tough series. And then if you survive that, you're probably going to play Winnipeg again. It, 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 boy, it's, it's a tough road. Well, I, I, that's I mean, that, I think your your point is to is right on, Pierre, and and it's interesting because of course Adam came from Washington, uh, where he covered the Capitals. I mean, the poster boys for for not getting it done un, until they did get it done. And and Adam, I don't know, do you whether you think that Pierre is right on there that this is a you know this is a Predators team that's no longer it's it's no longer a surprise team. They're no longer sort of the darlings in the NHL. They're a legitimate contender. Every or they should be every year. The expectations are off the charts, and if if they don't go to a West final, if they don't go to a Stanley Cup final, or of course if they don't win a cup, I mean, do you see this season as as a failure, given how the the standards have changed in Nashville? What's your take on this team going down the stretch? 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I would certainly think that anything less than the Stanley Cup would be a disappointment for this team. And every team reaches that point at some point when they when they become uh, a contender or reach contender status like the Predators have over the last several years. But, you know, it's interesting because this team's window, so to speak, you know, seems to be open in the sense that they have a lot of young players under contract for several more years at palatable cap hits like Philip Forsberg, like Victor Arvidsson. You know, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, Ryan Johansson, of course, who makes eight million dollars a year. You know, they have a lot of, you know, depth difference makers like Colton Sissons and, and and players of that nature. But it's it's interesting because, you know, it is going to get to a point where, as Pierre mentioned, in the salary cap world, it's going to be hard to keep this team together as constructed. Ryan Ellis's new extension kicks in next season. His cap hit rises from two point five million to six point two five million. Roman Yossi, who may be the steal of the league, or certainly one of the steals of the league at $4 million per, is up hmm. for a contract extension this summer, much like Ryan Ellis was last summer. And that's going to probably be the Predators' number one priority again. Um, you know, you look at this defense uh, particularly. I mean, Matias Ekholm is under contract at, I think, 3.75 or something around there for the next three years, I think, after this one. But then you have P.K. Subban still at $9 million. So with Ryan Ellis at 6.25, if we're just talking about the defense, and Roman Yossi at maybe 9, 8 to 9, if not more. Pierre could probably tell me that, you know, probably could say more than I could at this point. Um, you know, P.K. at 9, and Ekholm will certainly be due a raise at some point as well. I mean, it's going to be probably impossible or near impossible for them to keep this defense intact. So, you know, for as important as that of that, as, as, excuse me, as important as that top four defense is to this team and particularly David Poyle, how many more opportunities can you realistically have with this group when all of their salaries are going to rise exponentially in the next couple of years? And, you know, really, I think this team's window may be open for as long as Pecorino is on this team. He signed a contract extension in November that keeps him in Nashville for two more years. He's had a, he's been struggling down the stretch, but you know, we've seen his, we've seen him win a visit in the trophy last season. I know that his postseason left much to be desired, but it seems like the, the end of the Peck arena era would is sort of like the end of an era in general for the Predators. So maybe another two or three years that this team can realistically compete as constructed, but it does seem that they're going to have to be changes in the next couple of years, just because the salary cap is going to dictate that. Well, it's interesting, Pierre, when when we went through sort of a mock look at what a Seattle expansion draft might look like a year from June, uh, there were a lot of people who imagined that P.K. Subban might be a guy, going to, to Adam's point, uh, that, that P.K. Subban might be a guy that uh, could be available to uh, an expansion team in Seattle in much the same way that Marc-Andre Fleury became available to Vegas uh, because of the goaltending situation in Pittsburgh. And uh, there, there are going to be hit changes there. I'm curious, though, Pierre, when you look at this team and you, you mentioned Winnipeg, uh, right now Winnipeg in first place, they've got two games in hand on Nashville. So let's say that Winnipeg wins the Central Division. Nashville ends up playing St. Louis in the first round, which I think is the most likely matchup. What gives you pause about this Predators team? Is there something about their construct that you're like, geez, I, I, I don't know in spite of their talent and their depth. Is there one area that you're like, geez, I don't know if they're built to go four rounds this spring. Well, let's just finish off the thought on, on, you know, that Adam brought up and you touched on first. 
I don't imagine P.K. Subban will ever be available to Seattle. Right. And the reason I say that is that, much to what Adam was saying, I think this very summer the Predators are going to have to figure out what they're doing on defense. And by the way, it doesn't necessarily have to be Subban. I mean, everyone assumes Subban because he's making the most money. But who knows? I mean, they, you know, maybe it's Echo. I, I don't know. Like, if they can't afford all four, it doesn't necessarily mean Subban is the odd man out, although his salary certainly sticks out. Now, a lot of it will depend on what they get UOC signed to. And, you know, I, I, I think his numbers this year, and if you look at the market, you look at the deal John Carlson signed last year, I don't know how it's not at least $8 million a year for Roman Yossi. Now, I know that when it comes to the Predators, there's something called Nashville dollars, quote-unquote, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, uh, that Ryan Ellis found out about last summer, and that a lot of players have in Nashville, and David Poyles did an unbelievable job of pushing that culture and that mechanism in place so that, you know, everyone kind of chips in and takes a bit less to stay on board. And it's worth pointing out that, of course, P.K. Subban's deal was not signed with David Boyle. It was signed in Montreal. But my point is, if and when the Predators decide they can't afford their big four on defense, the Predators are going to make a bona fide NHL trade and get value. They're not going to just lose a guy in the expansion draft. Like, let's not kid ourselves here. So I just want to get that off my chest. But, you know, as it comes comes to the Preds, I mean, you know, the thing that I thought became reality at the end of that Winnipeg-Nashville series last year, which all three of us covered, I did not believe that as that series played on, the Predators truly believed they could play a run-and-gun series with Winnipeg Jets. That even though their regular season series had played out that, that way last year, once it really came time to know in your heart of hearts how you're going to beat Winnipeg, we saw what happened. Nashville really clammed up, went to a very defensive-type game, and, and played brilliantly in those wins in Winnipeg during that series. But at the end of the day, what truly won that series, to me, is Winnipeg's ability to organically produce offense in the moment it needed it most. And obviously in Game 7 that came through, but even in Game 5. And I still think, despite the additions of Granlin and Simmons, which I thought were brilliant additions by David Boyle, when I compare the two lineups, I see a Jets team that still has the ability to score essentially at will. And I don't know if you can say that about Nashville. That's great. You know, it's, and I applaud your use of the term organically. You stuck that right in there, and, and I'm not sure exactly what you mean but it sounded so good so i'm i'm with you and i'm going to use that over and over now i may quote you or i may not but uh and i couldn't i I couldn't agree more in in the way that it just seemed that well and adam and i covered the colorado um nashville series to start with and the predators to me last spring chased the playoffs almost from the get-go right they just never seemed to be a team that was in control, which I which I think they were uh, in the year they went to the final, right up until they got to Pittsburgh. Frankly, um, and Adam, I'm curious about what you what your view is on the additions at the the deadline. And Pierre alluded to them. Brian Boyle coming in, you know, a week or ten days before the actual deadline, and then Cal Granlund coming from Minnesota uh, in the Kevin Fiala deal, and then Wayne Simmons, who I think you know. Everyone, a lot of people thought he would be a great fit in Tampa, maybe in Toronto, certainly in Winnipeg, given the style they play. Um, but obviously, an important part of what the Predators are hoping to do come playoff time, and, and maybe with an eye to playing Winnipeg in the second round again. But I'm curious, what have you seen from those three guys in terms of 
their fit and, and whether it has, you know, where they are on that curve of, of being comfortable in Peter Laviolette's system and being the kinds of players um, that are, are, are going to be able to make a, an important contribution down the stretch and, and obviously into the playoffs. Well, I think with Brian Boyle to start, um, who was an early acquisition, it was early February um, when he was traded from the New Jersey Devils. I mean, I would be uh, confident in saying that he's exceeded everybody's expectations. I mean, I remember talking to Corey Massasak, our Devils reporter, um, when the trade happened. And, and Corey said that in a lot of ways, Brian Boyle was sort of a special team specialist. You know, he was playing fourth line minutes at five on five, but you know, he was planted in front of the crease on the power play. He was playing on the second penalty killing unit. Um, you know, a, a savvy player, a veteran player, a, a, a bona fide leader. Um, but I didn't expect him to have a tremendous impact of five on five, but he actually has. I mean, he's actually done a, a really good job, I think, of creating those high danger opportunities, as we like to call them, at five on five. And I really do think that his addition has been great. Uh, for this team so far. I mean, uh, I, I would not be surprised if the Predators wanted to bring him back next year. I really just do think he's been a good fit for this team on and off the ice. With the other two, Granlund and Simmons, I really still think they're trying to find exactly, the Predators are, where they best fit. I, I know that they have their ideas, but uh, you know, with Granlund, you know, I, I haven't really, he hasn't really popped to me, and I'm not sure that's through fault of his own. I, mean, I wrote a story for for our site on Monday about Kyle Turris um, and how if the Predators are to have any chance of winning the, St- winning the Stanley Cup, excuse me, they need Kyle Turris to rediscover his game. And I really do think a lot of Granlin's success hinges on Turris being able to do that. I mean, the reason why David Poyle traded for Mikhail Granlin was because he adds a layer of reliability to that second line, theoretically that Kevin Fiala was unable to do, and hence why Fiala, in part, was traded to Minnesota as part of that deal. But, you know, Turris hasn't even been able to hold onto the second-line center position. He was on the fourth line in their most recent game against Carolina with Brian Boyle and Freddie Goudreau. Um, so I really do think the successes of Granlund and Turris sort of go hand-in-hand. Hand. And with Simmons, of course, you know, the familiarity with Peter Laviolette, who just gushes about him at every opportunity— you know, I, I certainly think that helps Simmons in the sense that, you know, there's a familiarity there, there's a comfort there, and maybe knowing what to do. Um, you know, again, like Rainland, Simmons hasn't necessarily popped on the ice yet. Uh, but when I look at this series, and, and I completely agree with Pierre's assessment of how that series went down last year with Winnipeg, but another, excuse me, another thing that I noticed, it's maybe a little simplistic, but when you look at the skill players on the Winnipeg Jets, not only are they incredibly talented, they're also gigantic, figuratively speaking. I mean, Mark Shifley is a large man. Blake Wheeler, big guy. Even Patrick Laine, big guy. I mean, the Predators' skill players don't necessarily have the same heft. I mean, Ryan Johansson is a big guy, but other than that, they don't really have that beef to them. So now you get Simmons, who's perfect for that kind of thing. Not as skilled, but a big body. Same with Brian Boyle. So I think that sort of neutralizes the size advantage that the Winnipeg Jets had in certain aspects of that series. So I really like what they did at the deadline. Not only, as Pierre mentioned, did they not have to trade their first-round pick, but they didn't have to trade Ellie Tolvanen, and they didn't have to trade Dante Fabro. I mean, the, the Predators' prospect system... 
you know, is, is, is bare in terms of impact prospects. I mean, those are two, really the only two that come to mind in terms of real impact prospects. And Tolvanen ha- has, you know, had his growing pains in Milwaukee this season in the American Hockey League. And Dante Fabro has actually been a bright spot on a bad BU team that season could end this week. You know, it's possible to see Dante Fabro in a Predators sweater sooner rather than later. So, I mean, I, I really do like what they did. I think this team is much better today than it was before the deadline, but I would like to see them actually execute on it. This team has been incredibly inconsistent this season. I know a lot of it has to do with some serious injuries to key players, but they've been so up and down this year. I mean, it's hard for me to, to believe until I see it that they're going to be able to find that groove in the stretch run heading into the playoffs. Well, and, and just to follow up on that, if if the Predators do end up playing Winnipeg at again in the second round and if they beat them and I'll throw a third if in there if Wayne Simmons plays a central role that's no small story because you know as I reported and I think others did as well but I reported the day after the trade deadline the Winnipeg Jets were in on Wayne Simmons in a final half hour before the deadline the Jets had a pretty serious push even after acquiring Kevin Hayes Winnipeg was trying to get Wayne Simmons to the point where I'm told Eustace King the agent for Wayne Simmons had was getting ready to get the paperwork ready for Wayne Simmons to sign off because Winnipeg was on his no list, but he would have gone he would have gone to Winnipeg. I have that confirmed. So to Adam's point about Winnipeg being the bigger team, especially at the skill positions, imagine them adding Wayne Simmons instead of Nashville <laughs> in, that, in that scenario. So uh, that might prove to be quite a last minute uh, you know, important deal for David Poyle. When I say last minute, as Adam knows, that deal went down at 2.57 Eastern, three minutes before uh, the trade deadline in terms of Simmons ending up in Nashville. And I think part of the reason for that is that Nashville tried pretty hard on that final day to get in on Mark Stone and, and obviously failed. But that's a whole other story for another day had the Predators been able to get Mark Stone. Yeah, that's good stuff. All right. Adam, it's just about time to bring the first segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast, to a close. So we are going to set you free and let you at least enjoy a little bit of California sunshine before the Preds and the Ducks get going and you continue on the rest of your Western swing. But uh, I have no doubt that we'll be touching base with you again as the playoffs draw nearer and we check in on the Predators. But thanks for hanging out with us and and chatting Preds and, and what's going on in the Central Division. Of course, guys. Thank you for having me. Anytime, I, Pierre. I, I I just think that's so fascinating, right? I mean, like, and you you were all over this at the trade deadline, but just how close some of those moves at the very end came to being came to be something else. And and you're right. If if we do see Winnipeg and Nashville in that second round, that whole Wayne Simmons storyline is, is going to loom quite large, I think. And I use that figure <laughs> both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, are you, the one thing that t- strikes me that, that's a little bit different this year than a year ago is that, you know, a year ago, Nashville and Winnipeg were, they were light years, certainly ahead of the rest of the teams in the Central Division, uh, and and really in the in the Western Conference. I think it's fair to say um, it's a, it's a different dynamic in the West though this year, right? I mean, Calgary mm-hmm. and San Jose are probably certainly point wise um, uh, ahead of where uh, Nashville and Winnipeg are. Um, Vegas has actually closed the gap with a, a really uh, strong stretch of play uh, in recent weeks, so they're sort of 
a few points behind where Nashville and Win- Winnipeg are at. Does it change your view of the pecking order of the West? Like, does it is it markedly different, or do you still think Nashville, Winnipeg, based on their experience, based on their coaching, based on how they're built, that they're still they're still the cream, or is it much more of a melting pot for you now? No, I think there's five teams, and I think you can flip a coin between all five. Yeah, and I include Vegas in that. It's why I think that it's paramount for both the Central and the Pacific to to win your division more than ever. Like, honestly, you don't want any part of the Blues. I, I, like, I would still pick Nashville to beat St. Louis or Winnipeg to beat St. Louis, but it could certainly go seven. And now you're talking about what kind of impact does that have on your team moving forward, right? Uh, and the same thing in the Pacific. Who wants any part of Vegas? First of all, I'm not even sure I wouldn't pick Vegas after the acquisition of Mark Stone, but uh, the importance for San Jose and Calgary to beat each other out for first place in that division is gigantic, I think. And Because at the end of the day, with all due respect to Dallas or Minnesota or Colorado, I do think the division winner gets a much easier route um, you know, in the first round. So that part still holds true from a year ago. The difference is, like you, I saw either Winnipeg or Nashville in the cup final last year, and of course neither happened. Vegas ended up there, but now I see five teams of equal value that have a real shot. And by the way, team number six, St. Louis, uh, well, you know, be careful what you, what you ask for. So I, the real player absolutely is the month of March matters for, <laughs> for the teams with a shot to finish first in those respective divisions. I can't believe now you know that their Arizona fans are going to be all over you now. Well, wow, Arizona, that, whatever, all those teams in the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm giving you a hard time because you talked to Rick Dockett not long ago, uh, and uh, that Coyotes team, even though they, the, the day I, you know, we're chatting here on a Tuesday, and they did get shelled uh, the, in the previous game uh, before this taping, but they're as we speak now, one point behind Minnesota with a game in hand. So uh, how unbelievable! would that be if they do sneak in but but i'm with you there is a there is a definite gap and with all due respect to dallas and minnesota arizona colorado um you're right whether it's san jose or calgary whether it's nashville or winnipeg that end up as the division winners they should have they that should be the reward right i mean that's the way that the way the system should work they should play a team they shouldn't have too much trouble with in the in the first round and those two three spots in in both the central and in the pacific is going to be an absolute dogfight and, and to your point i thought last year nashville it, when i talk about ch- sort of chasing the playoffs it, they had their hands full with colorado and then credit to the way the Avs played but I think if the Preds had taken care of business in five games instead of having an extra trip out to Colorado, they'd have been in a be- much better spot, spot to start that second round series against Winnipeg. And, and it was so close that maybe it was one of it was that kind of factor um, mm. that 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 to played a role in their ultimate seven game loss. So uh, I'm with you on that. It's important to it's important to take care of business when you can. So. Um, all right, I'll even leave you the last word. Any, any last thoughts on, because we're going to talk to your colleague, Sarah Orleski from TSN. We're going to talk some Winnipeg. We're going to talk some Western Conference and board of, or, uh, general managers meetings. So we're going to talk some other stuff, but I'll, I'll be, give you the last word if you have a thought before we close this segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. The last word is who's going to beat Tampa? <laughs> maybe, maybe Boston, but man, the Lightning were here in Toronto last night and I, you know, and I'm going to touch on this in a piece tomorrow, but, uh, you know, 
we'll revisit this at another point, but the idea that John Cooper has no chance at the Jack Adams, and listen, if I had a vote, and I don't, I would still give it to Barry Trotz because I think it's just remarkable what the Islanders have done. But it does bug me that, that to me, it should be a much closer race in terms of public opinion. Like what John Cooper's done with the Tampa Bay Lightning, as we take this 17 points ahead of the second place team in the overall standings, like, come on. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't like the fact that he's not as much in the conversation as I think he should be. Yeah, see, well, and just before we close, because as it turns out, I'm not going to give you the last word. I, I disagree with you. I, I think there. I think he will be on the final ballot. I don't know whether he's going to win. I, I'm with you. I think Barry Trotz. Oh, I, I think he's going to be on the ballot. I'm talking about, I think it should be a very close vote. It should yeah. be on merit. I don't know if it will be. Right. Okay. I, I, but I think he will be on the final ballot. And there's a, there, and that's, that's not, I mean, there are a lot of, of guys that you can really point to and really make a strong case. For. I, I, what about Rod Brindamore in, in Carolina? Um, yes. John Cooper. Uh, what about Craig Berube in St. Louis? And we talked about him in the podcast recently, uh, the work that he's done and often interim coaches or coaches that come in halfway through Mike Sullivan's one of them, uh, don't get to, uh, due consideration from the Jack Adams voters, uh, which are the, the national hockey league broadcasters. Um, you know, um, Bill, Bill Peters, Peters and, yeah, yeah, Bill Claude, Peters, Claude yeah, Julien, cool. all, all those names are good, but it really, in my estimation, should be a 50-50 vote between Trotz and Cooper, and I don't think it's going to end up being that. I think it's going to be a landslide for Trotz, and again, he would be my pick. The argument I'm making is that I don't think Cooper is getting as much backing here as he should. I, I mean, I just think it's remarkable the job they've done in Tampa. Yeah, they were supposed to be good, but were they supposed to be 17 points better than the entire field good at this juncture? Come on. Okay. You know what? Again, and, and again even though you did toss me uh, over the side without even a moment's hesitation last week, uh, this is why I always love our podcast because this is a perfect segue uh, into the second segment because I want to talk a little Tampa before we talk to our good friend Sarah Orleski in Winnipeg. Uh, but don't go away. We'll come back with that second segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast, in just a moment. All right, here we go, everybody. As promised, back for segment two of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And it is with great pleasure that we bring in Sarah Orleski of TSN, based in Winnipeg, longtime Canadian journalist and uh, cover of many things, including the CFL and hockey, and now joining for the first time ever on Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Now, I don't wonder, uh, what's the pressure level, Sarah, for you right now? Scale of one to 10, how much pressure are you feeling right now? <laughs> a tremendous amount. I'm sweating. I'm really glad this is a podcast, not a video podcast. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to see I'm dusting myself with powder right now. <laughs> well, good call. Well, you shouldn't feel too much pressure because, as I mentioned, you've driven up the intelligence quotient on this this segment of the podcast by about seventy percent. So you're 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 way ahead of the game right now. And I have a question. So, in in the time that you've spent at TSN, have you had to interview Pierre a handful of times, or what's that experience like when you are either on set or having to be out in the field and and interviewing Pierre? Well, my experience with Pierre goes way back before TSN. Pierre and I... Yeah, to the too, score. So, yeah, yeah, back to the score. So poor Pierre was introduced. You know, there's a joke 
um, that Jay and Dan from TSN started about how I take a wind machine with me everywhere because it doesn't seem to matter where I am. My hair is blowing all over the place. And years ago, when Anaheim was in the cup final at 07, Pierre got to witness it firsthand when he and I must have done 40 takes (laughs) in the parking lot of the Honda Center in a wind gust and constantly having to stop because you couldn't see me because I look like Cousin It from the Adams Family because my hair kept blowing everywhere. So Pierre and I go way back, but I always look forward to it. He doesn't come in. Neither one of you actually come to visit too often in Winnipeg, but hopefully that'll change soon. Yeah, well, it was fun last spring. I uh, I covered all three rounds for the Jets and uh, did a, a whole bunch of hits every day with Sarah. And I was reminded what an absolute pro that she is. And, you know, I know that from watching her network. But to sort of live it day by day, man, like not a lot of journalists as prepared as Sarah. And it just makes your day easier when you're trying to juggle those hits with the column I'm writing for The Athletic and trying to have your whole day fit into one knowing that we're not going to waste a lot of time when we get to do our hits because Sarah's such a pro. That was, uh, that was a, a delight. You don't well, have to say those things. I already said I would do the podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, though. This means it, this means no money for you, Sarah, that he said those nice things. But actually, you know, it's, Pierre raises a good point. And actually, Pierre and I covered um, both the, of us together on that Nashville um, Winnipeg series in the second round last year. And uh, we had Adam Vingan on, our colleague from Nashville, on in the first segment. So we were talking about the Predators and we talked about you know, the changes that he's witnessed in the Nashville marketplace since moving there to cover the Predators, I think, four years ago, Adam said coming from Washington and Sarah last spring was such a titanic event for the city of Winnipeg and for all Jets fans everywhere to, to see that team go to a Western conference final and, and you guys doing those hits outside. Uh, To me, that's been, that's always a high point for me is to watch what's going on outside uh, the arena in downtown Winnipeg and how into it people are. And I wonder what it's been like for you. You know, you see the team come back after they departed Atlanta in the summer of 2011. But last year was really it's coming out. At least it seemed that way to me. And I wonder what it was like for you to have watched their return. And then last spring, finally having uh, the kind of playoff success that eluded them even in their first trip through in the NHL. Yeah, it was tremendous to be able to see that last year. And I'm, I mean, I've covered the team since they moved here in 2011, but I'm from Winnipeg having grown up here as well. So there's that extra little bit where I always say I'm not a fan of the team, but I do love to see this city and the people embrace to have something to cheer about, have uh, something to rally around. And it was unlike anything I had experienced before. It was so much fun to be able to see that growing street party in particular, because the atmosphere inside the building was tremendous, but we knew it was going to be. But the way that that street party in particular took on a life of its own, and I always use the example of my husband brought my daughter down, and he's not a um, sports fan, weirdly enough, um, but that's a whole other podcast. So, <laughs> yes. But he brought her down um, just to experience it. And so Winnipeg doesn't have a particularly... Um, vibrant downtown when there aren't events going on. So to see something like that happen and to see this city together come together downtown and to see people that aren't even hockey fans or Jets fans want to partake in it and experience it, it was something that I think was just tremendous for this city. 
and something that I know that fans are hoping that they get to experience again this year. And, and let me tell you what it's like when you're when you're in that moment outside and with all the the sea of white and and, and the, the craziness. Mm-hmm. All you can hear between our hits is Sarah, Sarah, come and take a picture, Sarah. <laughs> when you're with the Queen of Winnipeg, it's uh, you're you're reminded of your place in life uh, when you spend a few weeks there. I, I tell you, for me, it was tremendous. I mean, I, you know, Scotty, we've been lucky. We we saw the whole renaissance of hockey in Chicago and the three cups, and we covered all that. And you know, I covered a lot of playoff games in san jose over the years where that's as loud a rink as there is and obviously you know montreal and toronto but i tell you that crowd in winnipeg inside when something is happening i'm thinking of bufflin's big goal uh against uh, nashville i think it was in game one or game two from uh from the blue line and then he did his little dance and the crowd it, it just like your, your your computer is is vibrating off the table in the press box it's so amazing and i tell you if they can pull through this year and 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 win a stanley cup i can't imagine i don't know how sarah's going to cover it because between the cup parade and the cfl season underway they're going to have to duplicate sarah Leskin in two at tsn but I, I tell you that would be you know a canadian team hasn't won the cup of course since the 93 habs and certainly you have to look at Winnipeg as having the best chances, even though Calgary and Toronto are right there. That would be, I think, very emblematic of Canada finally getting a chance, you know, winning the cup again. The fact that it would be Winnipeg if it was, because I think a lot of Canadians could get behind the Jets as their second team if that were to ever happen. Well, it's a, it's a great uh, sorry, Sarah, I was just going to say this is a great segue into to asking you about this Jets team because it's, you know, I thought last year was interesting because it was the it was the first year I thought that that expectations were extremely high and the team, um, I, I thought they did a nice job, of course, in, in dispatching Minnesota in, in short order in the first round, won an emotional uh, series against Nashville in seven games, and then maybe just sort of hit a bit of a wall against uh, a Vegas team that just, yeah, maybe they were a expansion team of destiny or, or whatever it was, but th- that series turned out much differently than I think a lot of us. And like, I always like to bug Pierre about this because Pierre basically wrote the golden Knights off after game one of the West final. But I think a lot I of did. people did. <laughs> I think a lot of people did, but I wonder what you think, Sarah, this is a different dynamic now for the jets. The, the expectations remain very high for them. Um, what, what do you make of this team going down the stretch and, and what they're, not just capable of this spring, but maybe what the expectations are and what the fan, how the fans will respond to them this spring, whether you think it'll be different than say a year ago. I think that the fans will respond to them very similarly to what we saw last year. Um, I don't know whether or not it'll be interesting to see when the street party starts, that'll inevitably happen again, how different in that respect it is just because last year it was so you know, in some ways it was just so organic and built and built. So this year there's different expectations for that as well. But with respect to the team, this is a team that, I mind that you could see go all the way to the Stanley Cup final. You could also see this team lose out early. Um, and only in the sense that expectations have changed for this team, but this team just... It's had its share, like most of the teams, other than I suppose Tampa, but 
it's had its adversity this year. I don't think that we've seen the same level of consistency as what we saw last year from this group. And so I think that they have such great potential, but there has been a different dynamic around this team as opposed to what we saw in the past. And so I think that they're still trying to find themselves. They've had to contend, especially recently, with some significant injuries on their back end. They've had Dustin Bufflin out of the lineup with no timetable yet for him to return, although they are expecting him before the playoffs start. Josh Morrissey is out. That's two of your top four defensemen. Mm-hmm. And they get, um, Bufflin quarterbacks, the, power, the first power play unit. Josh Morrissey is, is part of that shutdown pairing, their top shutdown pairing with Jacob Truba. He's key on the penalty kill. So it, it's changed things. And so we're still, I think, trying to see exactly what this Jets team is. But definitely they have the potential to make another deep run into the postseason. But I just don't feel as if yet I have a really great handle on what we're going to see from this team. Well, it's interesting looking back at the trade deadline, Sarah, and, you know, the obviously the fans, and, and I guess we're partly at fault at TSN because we know that the Jets tried hard on Mark Stone and ultimately didn't get him. Not only didn't get him, we're one of the first contenders for him to pull out on the day of. But it, that was a busy time for Kevin Day off. And, and it, I'm reminded of every time, you know, I'm live on TV for 10 hours, I'm looking at Twitter and Seroleski has a new tweet saying, there's another trade coming. So you're obviously, <laughs> you obviously had the, the pipeline going there in terms of that final hour where the Jets ended up making, what, six deals? Now, only one of true, truly great significance in terms of, of Kevin Hayes. But I thought all that tweaking did still represent to me the fact that, A, the Jets scuffled in February. And that yep. they had injuries on defense with Bufflin and Morrissey. I mean, they don't trade for Nathan Bullia unless they have injuries. Um, but what do you make of all those yep. little moves at the end? It was interesting and, and kind of a departure, really, for, for Winnipeg. Absolutely. And you think about how many years we spent talking about how Kevin Chivaldayoff hadn't done much in the way of trades. And then, as you said, they weren't all big deals. But six completing six trades, I believe, made it maybe the second busiest a team had ever done in terms of quantity of trades on trade deadline. I think that we had something about that on the broadcast um, that night. Mm -hmm. But um, what I think it was key, you knew that they were looking to add more depth, much he said, and they wanted Mark Stone. I think that the hope was that they were going to be able to get somebody on the wing, but Kevin Hayes has come in. He's been able, they've been able to adjust their lineup for Paul Maurice, he's moved Brian Little to the wing. Kevin Hayes has done a good job and seems to have found some early chemistry with Nikolai Ehlers and Kyle Connor right now. So I think that they were key moves, and especially, you know, you mentioned that the priority for a defenseman like Nathan Beaulieu wouldn't have been there if Josh Morrissey hadn't been injured right beforehand um, in mm-hmm. the game in Arizona. But it's, I mean, it's been key because that this team has depth on the blue line but you're talking about losing a big minute player and so they've been able to the pieces that have come in have been able to fulfill a role they've lived up to what I think the expectations were for them coming into this but another one as in I mean this wasn't talked about much but the fact that they traded for Matt Hendricks to be honest Mm -hmm. one of the most interesting trades for me despite the fact that whether we ever see Matt Hendricks play 
again, in a judge's uniform remains to be seen. But the fact that they felt it was necessary to bring him back into the fold, I think says a lot about how this te- they're still trying to find their way. This was the youngest team going into the trade deadline in terms of their active roster, something that we didn't really talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. And I think that they needed another leadership they need another voice in there for leadership and specifically somebody that has the personality the experience the respect that matt hendricks does and so that for me told a lot about how when i said that you know i don't know exactly what to expect from this jets team yet and they've had their share of adversity and their highs and lows the decision to bring matt hendricks back to me spoke a lot about some of the areas that they think this team needed help with in order to get deep into the postseason and it wasn't necessarily just on the ice. Hmm. I think it is, you know, it's such a great point you, that you raised Sarah, because in having, I sat down at one point uh, during that second round series with Nashville and, and talked with Matt about his experience in Winnipeg because his family had stayed behind in Edmonton. And uh, it was, he's such a, and I've known him a long time. You know, you go back to the Washington days and um, I completely get why Kevin Cheveldayoff would want him in the mix somehow. Um, it, it will be fascinating. I mean, do you see him, like, is he going to play at all? or how? Because there is a, it's one thing to have a guy hanging around the room, but if he's not playing, is there, does the message get lost somehow? Or, no, I don't need him to play every game in the playoffs last year, but he was still, you know, he was still around. I wonder how you, how do you think he might be employed? Yeah, I don't know. I I can tell you that Paul Murray certainly has a lot of respect for Matt Hendricks, and even despite uh, despite Matt's age and the way that he's often utilized, but Paul probably more than a lot of other people has respect for what Hendricks could still bring on the ice. I don't expect, though, especially if as if people stay continue to stay healthy, I don't see him being utilized. Um, I would be surprised if he was, but I do think that he, because of his relationship with so many on this team and the type of personality he has and the respect that he has from the veterans on this team, that even if he doesn't play, he's still there to help set a tone during practice or to keep things light if it needs to be in the room or if he's, he can send, he can still say stuff that maybe other players can't. And with Dustin Bufflin right now, sideline, Dustin has a different personality than some of the other leadership <laughs> group on the Jets. That his, you know, personality and demeanor can change is different than what you see from Blake Wheeler or from Mark Shifley, and those are the three that wear letters on this team. And so I think that they miss having somebody like Dustin at times in that room that can keep things light if it needs to be, if things are tense. And I think that Matt has that ability to connect with younger players, to give advice, but then also be able to help take some of the pressure off of guys like Blake and Mark with respect to always being the ones to speak up. So I do think that he plays an important role. And I know that when he got, when they traded for him, that a number of people on Twitter responding going, I can't believe this. This isn't what we need. And I thought, well, I mean, there's a method, obviously, to their madness. Mm-hmm. And, that, and if Kevin Cheveldayoff and if um, that core group of players that make up that leadership group for the Jets 
felt that they were missing something by not having him in that room. And you hear still players from, you know, you hear out of Edmonton, how the Oilers still miss and Hendricks, that there is a value to somebody like that. And I think that, that that's going to be important for this group going down the stretch. And one last thing I want to ask you, Sarah, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on Patrick Liney because his mm-hmm. season, his season has been one of extremes, which actually kind of follows really his his pattern so far as a young NHL star and his goals come in bunches but there's more to it than that in fact I like to joke that if this podcast was about Fortnite that he'd probably be listening right now but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a story for another day but it, it's interesting to see him flourish on on the on the big line uh, right now because mm-hmm. to be honest we've never seen it before and and it's not so much because he hasn't been able to to do it as much as he just really hasn't been given the chance that often. I think you would agree. And so I'm wondering what your take is on the fact that that is actually happening finally and whether you think it's going to stick. Well, I think that right now with the production that they're seeing from it, that it will, I don't think that I think that although they're in the jets are in that race for first in the central with Nashville, that I think that as well, it's, this is a time where Palmeries can still play around a little bit if he wants to with his lines, but if they aren't going so that he knows what some of his options are for the postseason. But yeah, we hadn't seen Patrick play up with alongside Mark Scheifele and Blake Wheeler before. It had always been, they'd always had someone young on that left wing, but it had been mm-hmm. Nikolai Wheelers or Kyle Connor that had had a lot of success. But it's no secret that, that line A was struggling and had had, other than that great November, had not been able to produce and wasn't happy with the way that his game was necessarily going. And he's spoken about how much he's enjoyed the, not only the minutes playing up alongside Shifley and Wheeler, but also the responsibility that goes along with it. And that there is a lot of emphasis this year on not just him trying to produce in terms of goals, but really try to round his game because there was so much attention being paid to some of the, maybe the shortcomings of his game or the areas that hadn't developed as well because you didn't see the goals. And I think that some of those issues had always been there, but they were Mm. masked by the fact that he was scoring at such a consistent rate in previous seasons or so often that you didn't really pay as much attention to maybe his five on five game or some of the defensive uh, liabilities that, that were there. But he has said that he has, Loved having the opportunity to go up against other teams best, which is what you get with that Shifley line. And he mm-hmm. tried to elevate his game. And I know that Paul Maurice has been complimentary, even just before he had been moved up, complimentary about the work that Line A was putting in to try to get stronger on the defensive side of his game as well, so that he wasn't just all about the goals, that he needed to round into form a little bit more. And he's been very, they've been happy with the job that he's been doing and I mean Line A has had especially in recent games he's had some fantastic uh, assists on Blake Wheeler goals that you've really seen him you know try to thrive in this role and he's taken some of the necessary steps that they need in order for him to continue to play at that level and of course for Line A who's the restricted free agent mm-hmm. at the end of this season and looking for a new deal you know that this this move and this opportunity was certainly something that he wanted to take advantage of as well. 
Good. Sarah, before we let you go, first of all, I mistook myself. Matt Hendricks' family is in Minnesota, not in Edmonton. So that's where they were and where I assume they still are now that he's returned to Winnipeg. Uh, but I wonder, you, you see a lot of the Western Conference, obviously, with the Jets. And I wonder, Pierre and I were talking uh, after Adam and I joined us in the first segment, just uh, you know, sort of the the compression maybe in the Western Conference that's a little bit different this year. That last year it was Winnipeg and Nashville, and 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 I think then everyone else uh, fell in after that. And a little bit different now with Calgary and San Jose battling at the top of the Pacific, and the Golden Knights suddenly re-emerging. Of course, uh, adding Mark Stone to the trade deadline. Where, how do you? What's your view of the West as a whole when you factor in? Um, if you were to prioritize them, maybe as you look at the down the stretch and into the the first round is there is there a team that you think is has maybe shouldered its way above the fray or how do you view those uh, those top teams in the west right now i'm fascinated to watch not just the top team west but as out here i mean with the jets being in that mix for first vision we're obviously watching a lot with when it comes to that wild card race as well which so many teams that to be honest we had written off earlier this season that I remember the last time St. Louis came through or the last time that Arizona came through and you go, okay, well, it, you'd done the, the post-mortem their season of going, okay, this is it for, for them. And then all of a sudden, you look at the runs that they've been able to go on. So I am so intrigued by um, what some of these top teams, though, what uh, Calgary maybe do this year or whether or not we could see San Jose back and make that um, that deep playoff run and so I think that this is this more so than last season has me really excited for the postseason and for all of it not just who the Jets are going to match up against potentially but just you think about some of those first round series that there's there's just I think that there's so much depth that we're seeing now that we weren't seeing maybe always in the past. And there's a lot of intrigue with the central division where last year it was really, as you mentioned, Nashville, Winnipeg, and then kind of everyone else that you see teams like St. Louis. I wouldn't want to face St. Louis going into mm-hmm. that first round being how physical that team can be and the run down if they've got good goaltending. And so I think that there's, I don't think that there is that easy. I don't want to say easy because as pointed out, not anyone would have picked Vegas to have made it to the cup final last year. But I think that this year there's an argument to be made for so many of the teams in the West as to why you could see them make it all the way to the West final or the cup final this year. And I think that it makes these fi- this final month, I go, come on, okay, let's get it over with. <laughs> there's so much at stake and I can't wait. You know, there's, there's so many storylines to follow. The Jets have 14 games left. Um, there's so many storylines to follow, but there's still that excitement uh, more so than even last season for what this playoff, the playoff potential could be in the Western Conference. Who pays attention to the East, right? <laughs> that's why I go. That's why I go west every year, Sarah. That's why. <laughs> are you Are you coming out to Winnipeg this year? I think I think Dreg's uh, Dreg's. Uh, I think what happened is TSN asked Sarah who she wanted out as the insider, and she said Dregs. <laughs> she said Dregs. So I, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But I think it will be Dregs in the first round, and uh, I think I will go to Montreal if the Habs actually make it, which is now in doubt. And uh, if they don't, I don't know. I'll have to find a spot. I just think well, that I love. I've covered the West for so many years now that I just I love. 
um, the brand of hockey that we're seeing out here. And I think that especially when it comes to a best mm. of seven series, that you just, the, and the idea of seeing whether it be a Nashville Winnipeg series again, or, you know, facing off against the Vegas or San Jose, if you get through the or Calgary, of course, to the a final, but just the potential in a seven game series, come on, that's, and the atmospheres would just be fantastic. Big time. For sure. Good stuff. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a treat and let's, uh, let's, let's do it again sometime. If you can put up with Pierre and I, we'd love to have you aboard again, but thanks for taking the time and joining two man advantage, the podcast. It's been a, it's been excellent. I appreciate you guys asking. It was great talking to you. Pierre, I, I will give I will give you a full credit for uh, suggesting that Sarah join us on this edition of Two Man Advantage, and uh, she was excellent. And it does it, I just listening to her talk about the West and uh, makes me excited. What about what about a Calgary Winnipeg West final? Oh my oh goodness! Oh my goodness! It's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. that would be the old Smythe Division final. Although the poor Jets, it really it was mostly about Edmonton and Calgary back in the day, but. Uh, yeah, that would be fantastic for all kinds of reasons, and uh, but but really, all the all the dynamics are there. So, I mean, San Jose, Vegas, Nashville, the combination of those five teams really. If two out of those five end up in the conference final, I think it, I think it's going to be pretty fantastic. It, it, it's funny. I, I'm thinking, you know, Sarah had mentioned that Paul Maurice can use this month, even though first place is important to to, to figure out chemistry on his lines, and he really has to because you got to figure out what you have in Kevin Hayes and figure out if, if you don't necessarily need Kyle Connor on the big line where he's been most of the year, but now he isn't with Liney there, but let's not kid ourselves. Uh, again, I, I think that, I think that avoiding St. Louis, as you said earlier in the podcast is, is pretty important right now. I think if you're Winnipeg or Nashville. Yeah, you're right. All right. And just before we close this edition of two man advantage, uh, I just want, I want to circle back. You mentioned Tampa and we, we talked a lot about the West here. Um, but you did mention, uh, that we were taping this a, a day after an absolute beatdown of the Toronto Maple Leafs by the, uh, president's trophy winning. I think we can already award it to them. <laughs> Tampa Bay lightning. <laughs> and, and the question, and I think a lot of people are asking this question, well, who could beat Tampa? Are, but I think what we've learned in watching the Washington Capitals uh, up until last year, of course, is that there, there, there's a hesitancy, I think, when then when a team is as good as Tampa has been. And they're even better than Washington was when they were running away with President's Trophies uh, two years in a row in 16 and 17. And uh, is there anything about this team that in Tampa now that you like your that gives you pause is there or or is this a team that really is uh, at least in terms of getting out of the east and going to a cup final let's say mm. is this a team that's that is is just too good for for the competition in the east or are there things that give you pause about the the way the bolts are constructed or things that may happen to them I think the two teams that have the best shot at beating them would be Boston and Washington and uh, obviously, if it's Washington, it's in an Eastern Conference final, and it's a reprise of last year. Uh, Boston, I think this time, and Boston really got waxed by Tampa last year, but I think this is a much better Bruins team, better balanced team. I, I still would pick Tampa against both. I think this is finally the Lightning's year. I wouldn't write off the Leafs either, by the way. I know they looked terrible last night, but they actually played two of their best games of the year against Tampa and their two earlier matchups. Um, I just think, though, Tampa can play so many different types of games and beat you in different ways. 
you know, you asked me about a weakness. I don't know if there is one. I will say I will stick by what I said before the trade deadline. And I think to the point where I think I was annoying Julian Breesbo and the lightning management <laughs> team, but, but I really would have loved to have seen Wayne Simmons in Tampa. It wasn't a need as much as a perfect cherry on top of the Sunday for me in terms of a team that has it all. But I do think they got pushed around a bit um, up front by Washington in the Eastern conference final. And, you know, maybe he plays out differently this time. You know, one player that we never talk about with Tampa because there's so many great players in that team, but he scored twice last night against the Leafs with Cedric Paquette, who is among their more rugged, well, their most rugged player, period. And he's had a nice year. And, you know, it's mostly a fourth-line role for him, but penalty killer and uh, and showed some has shown some uh, just a bit of offense in a limited role this year. But obviously he's the kind of guy that, if they play Washington again, that you're going to have to have out there at times. And, you know, and I think when you really look at it, the continued um, evolution of some of their supporting cast has been really impressive this year. And so I, I think really Tampa, this is as deep as I've seen a team in the salary cap era. And they really are the team to beat in, in so many different ways. And you know what I really like about them is last year, they were 28th in the NHL in the penalty kill uh, in the regular season. And right now, as we tape this, they are first. Yep. And you talk about a team that looks like last year's team in terms of offense and, and place in the standings. But there have been changes, and defensively is one of them. They're fourth in the league in goals against. A year ago, they were 17th. So they have tightened up in some key areas while they continue to score goals like the 80s Oilers. And I, I just think as long as the health is there, and I know it's hardly a limb to, <laughs> it's not very courageous to say this, but I, I don't see really a team that I would feel strongly about beating them. I think Boston and Washington can beat them, but I still wouldn't pick them. Yeah. No, and you, and you, you raise a good point. I mean, you think about some of the changes they made at the deadline a year ago and, you know, right now Ryan McDonough has had a full year under his belt mm. there. And I know you talked to him this week, which I thought was an insightful piece talking to he and Jake Muzzin about, you know, coming over the deadline and, and the transition. And, and it does take, you know, Ryan McDonough's had a terrific year. And again, it sometimes gets lost because that team is so offensively overwhelming, but they're a hard much harder team, I think, to play against uh, up mm. and down their lineup now. But Ryan McDonough is a huge part of that, and he is going to get some Norris love as, as he should. Um, you know, it's not offensive numbers like uh, Brent Burns, and but he is a huge part of, I think, why that team is maybe a, uh, in a different plane altogether than a year ago. And uh, you know, it's you're right; it's they're going to they're going to be a handful, and uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to watch though, because that's it is the great thing for teams that have they've had very little adversity. They've outdistanced the you know they've lapped the field as it were, and we've seen that sometimes that's hard now for teams to to find that other level to find that that other gear to use that, uh, that mm-hmm. cliche. Um, and that'll be a challenge for John Cooper. Um, so it's, it's going to be fun to see though. So, yeah. And, and the only thing I would say with that is that the recipe for their success to get to the, at least to the conference final last year remains there. I mean, the path, I mean, in the sense that they had their way with the devils fairly easily in, in you know, in the first round, I don't know if that's going to be as easy this time around, but you'd certainly rather face any of those teams fighting for 7th and 8th than Boston or Toronto. <laughs> so, you know, again, 
if you're Tampa, you're secretly hoping Boston Toronto goes seven games in overtime again, <laughs> and that they just absolutely beat the crap out of each other in that first round. And so, I mean, no one's going to admit it in Boston, but they were gasping for air after that Leaf series, right? And so you're, you're playing yeah. Tampa in the second round. Now, I will say this. I bet you of all those bubble teams fighting it out, I'll tell you the team that I think scares Tampa the most. And I think it's the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, right. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, <laughs> may end up, Pittsburgh may end up third in the Metro and won't even be a factor. But if they end up eighth, like the second wild card, I just think, listen, I, I'm still picking Tampa all day long. But just the 87 factor and the pedigree of winning those championships, that's not, uh, it's not a great feeling when the whole world expects you, expects you as Tampa to wax them in the first round, right? That's, uh, yeah. that's, got, uh, that's got Sidney Crosby smiling and saying, ah, what the heck, let's, let's try and do this, right? So <laughs> that's the one yeah. matchup. Now, again, I'm still picking Tampa, but uh, the Lightning would never come out and admit this because you're, you're playing with karma. But of all those teams, that's the team they would least want to play, I think. Yeah, I, and and you know that the hockey gods are looking to standings now, going. Well, I don't think so. Wait a minute. As we as we speak right now, it would be Washington Pittsburgh in the first round, and so you know we got to have a <laughs> Pittsburgh Washington matchup. So, uh, but no, you, I think you're absolutely right. So, all right, my friend. So, uh, just before we go, was last week really the best podcast when I was no, there? Were no, you just saying that? Just, Are you just saying that I, to hurt me? I'm just kidding, buddy. Yes, I am <laughs> saying that to hurt you, but I love you. And uh, although Yarmo, uh, Yarmo Kekalanen and George yeah. were, were outstanding. And really, that was the key of the podcast is we heard less of me. So that was... That was really well, you heard none. Of, you heard none of me, so I can understand then the rating. <laughs> All right, but on that note, let's close this edition of Two Man Advantage podcast. We'll do it again next week, and um, that was good. Ton of fun. I'm glad to be back in the saddle. So thanks for thanks for letting me come back in. Good to have you back, buddy.